1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Father, we thank you for um, the book of 1 Timothy, and we, we know that you have spoken to us in it and through it, so please help this morning as we attend to it, that we would hear your voice loudly and clearly, and that we would respond as we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a new series this morning from 1 Timothy. We looked in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 20, at the beginning of the service, and we saw that um, when Paul left Ephesus, he warned that wolves would come in among the congregation and try to lead them astray. I've given this series the title, uh, God's Design for the Local Church, because I think that's what the book of 1 Timothy, along with uh, 2 Timothy and Titus, is all about, is trying to help the local church to be uh, what God has designed it to be. The aim of this letter is to show us what a healthy church needs to be, and how um, it explains how we can pursue God's purposes for the church and how it will practically work out in a local congregation, and it impacts each one of us. I think it's going to be such a helpful letter for us in the autumn uh, this year because, well, for at least two reasons. The first is this. We are entering a new phase in church life, and um, Resurrection Church was planted, I think, in uh, 1988. Since that time, it's gone through different phases in its life. It's, uh, it, it was planted initially as a prayer meeting in uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Hang Hau in the evenings. About 20 people went to that. And then a, a couple years after it was planted, uh, they called their first minister in to um, uh, lead them, and uh, they moved to the Seventh-day Adventist College in Clearwater Bay for a number of years. And the congregation grew up there. Um, and then eventually, uh, I think about 
13 years ago or so, we moved into this space, and uh, we have continued here happily for all those years. Now, over those years, the, the church has had its ups and downs. We, um, as a church, like the rest of Hong Kong, the handover in 97 saw people going and then coming. There was SARS, and the church was affected by that. There was the financial crisis, and of course now protests and uh, the COVID years. And through all of that, the, the Lord has preserved our church, and, and he has even prospered our church at various times. But we are, as I think we can see, at a bit of a low ebb as a church. And, and that has knock-on effects financially, and, and that means that we're not likely to be in this space come next year in the spring. Um, so, so we're transitioning space and venue, but I think as Hong Kong is in a, a new stage and, and as we're moving to a new place, that'll provide new opportunities, new challenges, and it is a new phase for our church. And that is a, a very practical reality, a, a very uh, personal reality for us. All that leads me to think that a study of 1 Timothy is very timely for us indeed, because in the midst of all the changes that are coming, we need to know what cannot change and what must not change and what we can be more flexible about. God has given this letter to show us what our priorities as a church need to be in order to please him and what sorts of dangers we have to be watching out for uh, through whatever transitions we make. It's going to help us see what a, a truly biblical church will look like and, and what its concerns should be. So it's, it's important for our community now. But the second thing that makes me think that 1 Timothy is a really timely letter for us is, um, well, due to the nature of life in Hong Kong at the moment, we've sent a number of people away to different countries in the world, and I've heard some reports back from them as they've gone. And many of them, several of them that I've spoken to, have reported how difficult it is to find and become part of a healthy church. Different people in different countries have reported different things, but uh, over the last month I've spoken to at least three. I can't remember if I've spoken to more, but uh, they've told me, each in their own way, different stories about the challenges that they've faced in their new countries. One former member uh, who moved to an eastern country, they, they told me that uh, they had visited three churches near their new home, and they had left all three feeling ashamed, embarrassed, and lost. Because in all three of them, she said that at certain times in the services, everybody shouted out loudly, they fell on the floor weeping, they spoke in tongues, they, they, it, there was a, a bit of what she described as chaos in the congregation. She wondered, is this okay or not? In one of the churches, she said that they were encouraging members to, to move to a Christian village in another country. She wondered, am I just being fussy? Is this... Is this okay for Christian churches to be doing this sort of thing? Another person who moved to a Western country, they, they told me that one of the churches they were visiting kept going on, and, and they noted that it was 
maybe a, a bit strange about how inclusive their church was and how everyone was welcome and, and celebrated for who they are. And, and they asked me what I thought that might mean. Now, knowing that it's not unusual to see rainbow pride flags on churches in that country, I, I said I couldn't be sure, but it might be something about uh, their teaching on human sexuality. And then uh, uh, still another person. They spoke to me of a, a third country. They were telling me how the churches that their family members went to seemed to be more passionate about political goals and, and political issues than they were about the gospel. So I, I don't know what churches you're going to be part of in the future. I hope that you're going to be part of this church for a very long time. I don't want to see any of you go. Uh, I know some of you will, though, and when you go, I want you to go to a church that's fit for purpose. I don't want you to, to um, struggle and, and to be unsure what is right and good for a church and what is not. And 1 Timothy is going to help you to find a healthy church. Let me just say, before we move on from that point, that I really advise you, before you move anywhere, whether it's a new city or a new neighborhood, you're thinking about, which church am I going to go to? It's really pretty silly to move to a place settle in, and then think, well, what churches are around? That's the wrong way around. You need to be thinking, which church do I want to be a part of? Which one is a healthy uh, church where I'm going to be fed the right things from Scripture and then move into that neighborhood? That's the way around it needs to be. So I don't know if I adequately equipped the people who left over recent months or, or years for the... the, the um, task of finding a new church. I hope I did, but those of us who are still here, this letter is going to help us. It's going to help you to evaluate both this church and other churches in the future. So a series in 1 Timothy, it's timely whether we stay, whether we go, and as we dive into this opening section this morning, I want you to see two things from this passage. The church that is fit for purpose will refute error and reinforce the truth. Those are the two things that we're going to talk about this morning. Refuting error, reinforcing truth. As with all of Paul's letters, we would do well to pay attention to his greeting at the beginning of this letter. In all of his letters, he generally greets people with a certain way that points to what he wants to talk about in the letter, and he does that here in 1 Timothy as well. He doesn't simply write, dear so-and-so, and then go on. He says in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're introduced to three key figures here, Paul, Timothy, and God. Paul is not just writing as a friend. He is writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle means a messenger or an envoy, somebody who is sent with an official message. And that is what Paul is sent with, an official message that carries the authority of the one that sent him. 
And Paul makes it clear that he, like the other apostles, he hasn't simply volunteered himself. He hasn't simply stood up and said, I'm going to go do this, and other humans have agreed. But God has directly chosen him and sent him out on the mission to spread this message. And to reject his message, therefore, is to reject the one that sent him, the God who saves, the Christ who gives hope. And he's writing to Timothy. Now, we know Timothy from the book of Acts. That's where we first meet him in Acts chapter 16. And we're told that he was the uncircumcised son of a Jewish woman and a Greek uh, man. And he, having this mixed heritage and, and not having the key mark of Jewish identity um, until he was circumcised as an adult, uh, as an adult, it may have been that some of the false teachers around who are obsessed with genealogies, who are obsessed with proving their righteousness according to the law, it may have been that they considered him illegitimate. But Paul calls him his genuine son in the faith. Timothy had embraced the gospel that Paul preached, and he had helped spread it when he joined Paul on his missionary journeys. And so despite the fact that he was a young man, despite the fact that he seems to have been a bit timid, despite the fact that he uh, was struggling with some sort of uh, stomach problem, it seems, he was committed to spreading the gospel, and so Timothy is a legitimate son of the faith. He's the real deal, says Paul. And then, of course, there's God. Paul speaks of God our Savior, of Christ our hope, the grace, mercy, and peace which come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, in kind of seed form, the gospel that Paul is spreading around the world, that he's commanded to preach and that he commands Timothy to preach. The Savior, the Lord, the hope, the one who shows mercy and grace and gives peace. All that Paul says in this letter, he says, so that that message can be defended, preserved, and go out unadulterated. And so this is a letter from Christ's apostle to his legitimate son in the faith. And it is not simply a private correspondence. It's not a personal letter only. It is that, but not only. After all, why would Paul need to remind his friend, Timothy, who he traveled and worked with for a long period of time, that he was an apostle? He wouldn't need to remind him of that. Rather, this is a letter that Paul sent to Timothy and intended that it be read by the whole church in Ephesus. That's why, for example, as the letter closes in chapter 6, he says, grace to you all, because he knows that all the people in the church are going to hear this letter read out and, and hear what it says. So uh, Paul has planted and established the church in Ephesus probably about a decade before he writes this letter, and now here, it's facing danger that he feels compelled to address. And with the whole church listening in, the first thing he says is probably a little bit awkward for them. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. 
such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, the apostle, he'd been commanded by God and authorized and commanded Timothy to command certain people to shut up, stop teaching, stop talking. The, the Greek word he uses here for false doctrine, that's translated false doctrine, it literally means to teach something different. So certain people, the fundamental problem that they were doing, the, the fundamental thing they were doing was teaching something different. Different than God our Savior, than Christ Jesus our hope. Instead, when they opened up the Bible, when they uh, taught from the pulpit, they wove fantastic myths. They speculated about genealogies. They promoted controversy. And what exactly they were teaching, we, we can't know. But from the sounds of it, they were using the Bible as a playground for their own wild imaginations. It's a way of reading the Old Testament that you can find, if you would like to see examples of it, in the Haggadah, in the Book of Jubilees, in the Qumran Scrolls. These are uh, Jewish writings from around the Temple period, the Second Temple period in uh, Israel, and they, they take portions of the Old Testament scripture, and they use them as a sort of jumping off point. And so they read the genealogies in the book of Genesis, and they see all the names, and they think, well, nothing has been written about, you know, uh, Enoch or whatever, and so I'm going to go and write this side story about Enoch, and that'll really illustrate the points I want to make to the people. And they would do that in all sorts of ways. They would um, make the the kind of narrative of the story that was very clear about X happened, then Y, then Z, and they would make it an allegory about why we need to be doing certain things and why, why um, God would uh, command us to do this or that. So allegorizing the stories, making up side stories, you could think about it as a sort of fan fiction for the scripture. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of fan fiction, but somebody takes an authorized property like the the Marvel comics, and then they write side stories that aren't authorized. And that's what people were doing with the Old Testament scriptures. And so maybe that's what these false teachers were doing as well. And you can see certain examples of this uh, even persisting to this day in the church. I'm sure many of you have come across teaching on YouTube or in popular books that take some of the imagery of the prophets some of the imagery of Revelation, and it explains with a sort of complicated narrative about why these texts predict the rise of America or, or the rise of China or, or the election of a political figure or the spread of COVID or whatever modern-day event. They somehow find that in the Scriptures, and so therefore they can teach the point that they want to teach. Or, or you have health gurus who will look into the Bible and claim that the Bible outlines a special diet plan that is going to prevent aging, it's going to fight cancer, it's going to give you energy and all the things that you want from a diet plan. And it's right there in the Bible, if only you had seen it. Or you have the self-help books that claim to have uncovered a, a secret strategy in the Bible for manifesting health and wealth and and success. 
or the preachers who go into really great detail about angels and demons and spiritual warfare that goes far beyond what the scriptures contain. In all these ways, certain people claim to be teaching the deep things of the Bible, but they're actually replacing the teaching of the Bible with something different. A quick look at the Amazon bestseller list for Christian books this week. I don't know if it's uh, for the month or the year or whatever, but I looked at it this week. I think about five of the top ten books on the bestseller list fall into this category. It still sells a lot of books. It still fills up big churches. This kind of teaching of something different. And Paul explains that these different teachings are not just flights of fancy. These different teachings are actually damaging to the church, dangerous for Christians. How so? Well, verse 4, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Teaching that departs from the apostolic gospel is damaging and dangerous because it obstructs God's work. God's plan is for the church to bring people to saving faith that produces love. That's God's plan. Controversial speculation, it sells books, it creates a spectacle, it fills up a building maybe, it gets people excited certainly, but it will not produce faith and love. It's only true of the gospel of Jesus Christ, death for sin, his resurrection and glory. It's only true of that message that it can produce faith and love in people. Because that is the only God-given message that can purify hearts, that can give people a good conscience, that can produce a sincere faith, as we read in verse 5. And isn't that your testimony, Christian brothers and sisters? That by hearing the gospel of Christ's death for your sin, that your heart has been made clean. You don't feel the weight of the guilt and the shame anymore, knowing that you've been forgiven and cleansed. And isn't it your experience that through this message of the cross, your conscience has been made right? And so there are things that you once loved that you now run a, a mile away from in life. Because you don't want to do it anymore because you know it's not right. Your conscience has been educated. And likewise, there are things that you uh, now love that you used to hate, the, the things of God, the people of God maybe. Because you have been changed by the truth of the gospel. Your conscience educated. You've been given a good conscience. And only a church that is focused on preaching and teaching the true gospel will see hearts purified, consciences made right, and a sincere faith being lived out. 
And that means that a local church that is operating according to God's design and pursuing God's goals in verse 5, which we saw, will necessarily have to refute all the errors that Paul talks about in verses 3 and 4 and in verses 6 and 7. It surrounds what, the, what God's purpose for the church is. When certain people arise spreading a different doctrine, the biblical church will address false teaching and false teachers directly, perhaps sometimes even by name. That's what Paul does at the end of this first chapter. He calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander as false teachers. Now, why do we do that? It's not because we love controversy. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The false teachers are the controversialists. We have to call out false teaching, refute error, because we know that only the true gospel does God's work in the church. And we don't want anything to jeopardize that. But I think that is deeply uncomfortable for many people. Saying that some teaching, some people are wrong, some people who claim to be Christians, have a big teaching platform, are wrong, especially when that's done from the pulpit, we think, well, that's harsh, that's condemning. And I'm sure that sometimes pastors that do that are harsh sometimes, overly harsh. But actually, if we want the true biblical gospel that gives people pure hearts, good consciences, sincere faith to be heard, then different teachings need to be refuted. Different teachings that creep in. As many people as they attract, as many books as they sell, they're actually meaningless talk, and they need to be silenced. In verses 8 and 10, Paul confronts a uh, one such example of an error. Those who wanted to be teachers of the law, but who didn't have any idea what the law was about. Perhaps just as they misused the genealogies as uh, speculation. They, they misused the Old Testament law by allegorizing it, searching it for hidden meanings. Um, you can think of some of those uh, teachers and books that count the letters in the Hebrew text, and somehow they come up with different names or throughout history, and it's just all speculation. Maybe that's what they're doing with the law. Perhaps they're using it to show how they themselves were righteous. But Paul points them to the right use of the law, which is that it helps Christians to prosecute sin and to pursue godliness. Verse 8, we know that the law is good, if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, Paul is evidently alluding to the Ten Commandments in verses 9 and 10. You can see that very clearly from um, those who kill their fathers and mothers. That's commandment uh, 5, I believe. But if you trace back the words to 
you, you can see how they would correspond to, um, so the, the uh, first one, the ungodly, so lawbreakers and rebels, that's sort of a general umbrella term for all the, the lawbreakers. Then the ungodly is the first commandment, that you'll have no other gods before me. The sinful is the, the second commandment, those who make graven images. The unholy, about, um, uh, I, I'm losing the, the numbering for the Ten Commandments, but look into it yourself and see that they correspond to the Ten. Um, and so he's taking the Ten Commandments, and he's saying that the Old Testament law is not some secret code that we need to unravel, nor is the law meant to make us feel righteous and, and upright as people. Rather, it's meant to expose us all as sinners and to make us yearn for the gospel of salvation. So why do we need to be told to honor our fathers and mothers? It's not because we all find that a, a very easy thing to do. It's because we find it difficult to do. We, we tend to dishonor them, and in the extreme terms that he puts it, we, we would rather kill them sometimes than honor them. And why do we need to be told not to commit adultery? Well, it's not because we find it perfectly natural to reserve sex to a marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. No. It's because we're prone to sexual immorality, whether that's of the heterosexual or homosexual variety. And so we need to be told the law because our inclinations are opposed to it. We are sinful. Old Testament law exposes the sinfulness of people, and it calls it what it is, so that seeing how sinful we are, we will flee to the God who saves, to the Christ who gives hope. And when we become Christians and, and we receive the gospel, the Old Testament moral law becomes then a guide, a, a guide for a life that um, is pleasing to God that is built on sound doctrine. And so anyone who uses the law as uh, something else, for example, as a way of justifying themselves and saying, well, according to all these checklists, I'm a perfectly righteous person. Or a person who uses it to show how superior they are. So my people obey these laws, but those people over there, they don't obey these laws, and so we're good and they're bad. Or maybe even some people use the law to show why they don't need saving. Why would I need a Christ to save me? I've kept all these laws from my youth. Anyone who uses the law like that, they're using the law unlawfully. And it must be refuted. And so you see, Paul calls out to these certain people. And he'll continue to do that through the letter. And I hope that any biblical church including ours, will do that when people are endangered by a different message. Now, as I draw to a close this morning, I just want to point out three applications for our church from this section. The first is this. A biblical church can seem like a boring church. It's not really. It, hear me out, but it, it can seem like that to some people, especially those who haven't embraced the gospel. Because you will never come to a gospel-centered church, you'll never come to this church 
and hear me talking about an astonishing new revelation that will change your life, you will never experience the excitement of being swept up with a large group of people in a new political or cultural or theological movement here. Rather, week by week and year by year, you will hear the message of the Scriptures proclaimed that though our sin condemns us, our God saves us. Our Christ gives us hope. That's the message that you're going to hear here. But of course, that won't be boring at all because that is the message through which people have their hearts cleansed, their consciences made right, their sincer the sincerity of their faith built. Different teachings will produce temporary fireworks. They could produce a lot of excitement. It could be a thrilling place to be, but ultimately it's meaningless talk. It will not accomplish God's work in the world. And there's nothing more exciting than God working in the world. Secondly, a biblical church can sometimes feel uncomfortable. How could it not feel uncomfortable? A community where sin is not embraced and indulged, where it's not covered up and ignored, but it's prosecuted, a place like that is bound to be uncomfortable for sinful people, which we all are. We don't naturally like confrontation. We don't naturally want to be told that we need to change in certain ways. But we're not a natural community. We are a Christian community, a supernatural community that God has called together by the gospel. And so we, as a community, want to pursue godliness. So we need to prosecute sin. We pursue godliness together. We spur each other on. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. We help each other to live lives that conform to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And when we're confronted with our failures once again, which we all will be eventually, uh, we aren't harsh with each other. We simply direct one another back to the grace, to the mercy, to the peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all desperately need that. But you wouldn't choose to be uncomfortable like that unless you were actually a Christian. Thirdly, a biblical church will be distinctive, but not different. If we were to embrace different teachings, we could create a unique church. If we taught that every Christian should perform miracles, and if you don't perform miracles, you're not a Christian, well then, that would make us different from most churches uh, down through time and across the world. And we would be unique in that way, but it might even get more people to come here. They might just come to see, is this controversial speculation true? Uh, are they really doing miracles there? We better go and see. But it would be a distraction from the message that saves. Rather, when we keep the true biblical gospel as our main priority, we will be distinctive in the world. Because when everyone else is obsessed with politics, when they're uh, falling out with each other and turning against one another because of yellow and blue or Republican or Democrat or whatever else, the biblical church will keep on preaching 
the gospel. Keep on living it out. Keep on loving because of it. When conspiracy and suspicion are rampant throughout the world, a biblical church will preach the gospel. It'll be distinctive, but it won't be different from all the other biblical churches around. And so, friends, this autumn, this is the place where you are going to hear the gospel that accomplishes God's work in your life. It's here as we open up the scriptures together. This is the place where you're going to have the errors that have crept into your own heart and your own mind refuted, as we all need to have errors refuted and to be replaced with the truth. It's here that you're going to find others who are ready to be uncomfortable if it means being conformed to the image of the glorious and blessed Savior. And so I'm so glad to be here with you. And I'm so glad to enter this new phase of church life with you. Because I'm convinced we're going to see God working more and more over the coming years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel, the one that changes our hearts, our consciences, uh, gives us faith, that does your work in our church and in our lives as individuals. Please would that remain the center of all that we do here. Please would that remain the, our sole focus, this gospel of your goodness. And Lord, I pray that as we keep that as our focus, you would guide us through all the practical issues. That you would help us uh, to help one another, to love one another, to serve you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.